Hello, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm recording this from Berlin, where I'm spending most of July. For the second summer in a row, I swapped apartments with a very nice American couple who wanted to spend some time in Brooklyn. I lived here for nine months back in the day, and I really, really love this city. This time around, I'm dividing my time between working on my book, drinking beer, eating the massive amounts of delicious Middle Eastern food in this neighborhood, and practicing my very bad German accent. It's crazy that my accent is so bad given that I actually lived in this country for a while. I really lack any sort of linguistic talent or das ist sehr trauerisch. <clears throat> Excuse me. Before I took off for Germany, I interviewed Ethan Strauss. He's a reporter at The Athletic and formerly ESPN, and he's working on a book about the Golden State Warriors, who until about a month ago were the NBA's most recent dynasty. This definitely seems like one of those instances where a book about one particular thing is really going to be about everything. As you'll see from our conversation, the question of what happens to you when you reach a certain pinnacle of professional achievement is really, really interesting. It touches on a lot of issues pertaining to the good life and how to live it, and the extent to which professional accolades do or don't bring fulfillment and happiness in the first place. So the first half of our interview is maybe a 50-50 mix of basketball talk and life talk, and then in the second half we discuss Jordan Peterson and other political stuff. I do think that even listeners who aren't into sports or basketball will enjoy this conversation, in part because Ethan is just a very smart and well-spoken guy. Remember that you can support this podcast by rating and reviewing it, by subscribing on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever else if you haven't already, and by subscribing to my newsletter at jessysingle.substack.com. If you really want to go the extra mile, you can petition Angela Merkel to throw her support behind this podcast. The Germans are really good about fun in the arts, so you never know. Maybe she'll shower me with euros and I can just stay here and live the life of an expat layabout. That sounds pretty wonderful. Okay, that's all I got. I hope you enjoy my interview with Ethan Strauss of The Athletic. We know how to have a conversation, I think. I think it's possible. So, Ethan, let's uh, let's start. Tell everyone a little bit about your book. Okay, so I'm writing a book about not not just the Warriors dynasty, but the attempt to maintain it with the forces arrayed against it. And ultimately, it would seem now the dynasty is done. I mean, I don't want to call it before it's over, but for those who don't follow the NBA, they had uh, two devastating injuries to star players in the final two games of the NBA. Finals, uh, final of finals. It just sounds awkward phrasing wise. But anyway, uh, I am interested in the condition of trying to maintain the dynasty, trying to maintain the super team. And it seems in the NBA, there's a lot of interest in that, that uh, one of the most famous books ever written about the NBA by David Halberstam, Breaks of the Game. It's not about the Portland Trailblazers ascending and winning. It's about how they had had this perfect team and all come together and then it starts falling apart. And it's the process of how it's falling apart. And we don't talk about the ascent of Shaq and Kobe and how they all started clicking. For whatever reason, we are drawn to that human condition of ego and uh, feuding and soap opera. We're drawn to the, the, the falling out of Shaq and Kobe. Now, I don't know what's happening with the Warriors will necessarily be as pronounced as what happened with Shaq and Kobe, but that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in watching people try to maintain a dynasty in a very narcissistic age that tends to atomize people. Do you think part of it is just like I I can't really identify with being 
Shaq or Kobe being an elite athlete, I can definitely identify with like getting in a fight with a coworker. Do you think people just find that aspect of it more relatable or is it a shot in front of thing or what? I think it, it's all of those things. It's all of those things. Uh, the NBA is a sport where many of the fans root for the individual over the team. So there's an element of you're really renting. They, they are your vessel and you're imagining yourself as them. And then you're feeling that when you get mad at the other coworker. But I also think that there's just something poetically tragic about it all when we see these things fall apart. And it seems as though there's so much interest in it, more so than the rise. Uh, one of the greatest books written about basketball is David Halberstam's Breaks of the Game. It's about the Portland Trailblazers of the 70s. It's a team that, that, that won a championship. But the book isn't about that. It's really about what happened afterwards and how it all fell apart. Uh, it, it seems people are drawn to that. People don't talk about Shaq and Kobe clicking and coming together. They talk about the falling out between those two guys and just how uh, just, just operatic it all was. Uh, they're drawn to that. Uh, there's going to be a documentary coming out on, on I believe, Netflix, uh, maybe ESPN, uh, on the final season of the Jordan Bulls. And I think it's called The Last Dance because they proclaimed that it was the last, it was the last go around. And it's about it all falling apart. For whatever reason, in the NBA, people seem to be drawn to the demise. But when you when you got this book deal, it it wasn't yet clear like the demise was on the horizon, right? That going in, that can't have necessarily been the plan. And we still don't officially know that right. demise has happened. You know, you had these two two injuries, but you could start seeing signs of it. You could start seeing fissures and cracks. I I initially just agreed to write a book about about the NBA, and we didn't really know where we go from there. I initially actually thought about just writing about the subcultures within the NBA that, that are of interest to me. And I still might do that. And there will be a keeping of that in this book to be clear, but, but I'm drawn to those kinds of books. I love those kinds of books. I love uh, Bourdain's kitchen confidential, which showed people, Hey, this is what's going on in the culture uh, behind the whatever, where, where, where do chefs operate? What are, what are they the behind? What are they behind? I, I don't know. They're somewhere. They're stashed somewhere in a dungeon cooking the food. Right. And they've got their own culture. And I loved learning about it. And so did a lot of people. I, I, I love uh, Among the th uh, Among the Thugs by, uh, by Buford about the soccer hooligan culture of that era and getting pulled into it. So I, I, I enjoy those kinds of books. And I, I initially conceived of this as one of those. And I think I started to merge that with the story of the Warriors just because it was so compelling. And I want to tell that story and combine it with bringing people into this world of NBA ops and the war room and the suits uh, who try to run these teams and try to maintain and manage these situations while being just completely at the mercy of the players. Basically, it's people who have all of the power and none of the control. Right. And and that's one of the interesting things about the NBA is, I mean, this is a cliche at this point, if you listen to NBA podcast, but it's it's really become such a, a player's league where, where labor has a degree of power and sway that arguably in other sports they do not, right? Yeah. Labor is so powerful that I'm not even sure if it's labor anymore, right? right? It, it, it's completely uh, skewed in that direction. Um, and it creates, it creates some funny dynamics. You've got billionaires groveling before... Uh, men who are in their 20s. Um, and I don't know if it's created chaos. I don't know if what it's created is good or if it's bad, but what it certainly is is goddamn interesting. I think some of the most interesting and funny moments in the NBA have been like 
Dan Gilbert situations where you have owners who maybe don't don't understand that they might be really rich and powerful in some ways, but they actually lack certain degrees of very important power and they haven't really grokked the full situation. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense and it's applicable to owners and it's also applicable to players. I think players often run up against the limits of their own power because they've succeeded so much and people have doubted them and told them that I can't do this or that. And they get into a situation eventually where there are actually limits on their power or what's made them great has started to ebb. And it's just it's it, it's you can understand it. You can understand it from from their perspective of if you've conquered all things up until this point, how can you be prepared for the moment when you don't or when you can't? I'm sort of fascinated psychologically by the question of what it does to you to have just like a rush of of acclaim and admiration come at you, which which is something that hasn't really happened to me, but um, you know, like uh, the, the Celtics. Well, you have you a... get both. You get both. You get both. You know, it's it it's interesting. I I don't want to digress too much, but I, I think you even warned me that going on this podcast might be bad for my career, which only made me more intrigued. You know, it only made me more intrigued to do so. But you've got your admirers, Jesse. You've got you've had your admiration. It's it's had to have occurred. I mean, maybe maybe the difference is that with you, by the nature of what you write about. It's always a mix of things, and I guess generally when you hit the big game-winning game seven shot that Kawhi Leonard hit, that that doesn't happen. It's it's ninety-nine percent positive. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, and I mean, first of all, I appreciate it, but I think what I meant more was like, um, yeah, it's definitely a mixed bag. Whenever you write about something controversial, but um, Terry Rozier, he's a, a backup point guard on my team, the Celtics. He had, you know, one really good playoff series because he was filling in their injuries. He had like a pretty good year. You know, suddenly he's the man. Suddenly he's all anyone's talking about. And it you could sort of tell it changed his own perception of himself, mm. maybe in ways that aren't fully adaptive or realistic for the situation. So I think um, you know, whatever I you know, sometimes I write an article and people like it, but it's just not that sort of media spotlight, you're the man, you're the man, you're the man. Yeah. And um it's, and I know yeah. It's it's not I don't think it's good for most people psychologically. No, not at all. And I, I think that's part of what's in the book, too. And, and, and Kevin Durant is such a, an interesting uh, case study of it all, which is just watching people grapple with how these devices we've been sold that have really gamed our narcissism um, and it, just 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 seeing what it does to us. And we're reckoning with that as a society. Everybody's dealing with it on a certain level. But the NBA players and the athletes, they they have to deal with it on a scaled up level that we cannot even begin to fathom. And I think it takes a very special kind of person to not be psychologically distorted by that. We're just not designed to deal with it. You got uh, yelled at by Kevin Durant, correct? Yes. Yes, I did. I, I would like to hear that story. Oh, well, I, I mean, we can relate. We can relate what I just mentioned to, to that story because I thought in <sighs> a way – he pulled me into his world and gave me some insight into what it looks like from inside the fishbowl, right? I, I, um, and I don't, I, I don't know how to do the expository on this because I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the NBA, but I, I he, uh, there, there, he, uh, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to remember it all. Um, the New York Knicks opened up a bunch of cap room. Uh, they, they basically, the New York Knicks opened up a scenario whereby they could sign Kevin Durant in the offseason. There were rumors that he would go to the Knicks. And concurrent with this happening, Durant disappeared from contractually obligated media availability, uh, availability for about eight days. Uh, I wrote about it. 
I wrote uh, about how within the team there wasn't an expectation that he would return. Um, that might have been thrown into flux uh, by the grievous injury he suffered. We shall see. And uh, he called me up by name in a press conference and was quite angry about it. And so the next day it was just such a roller coaster because you wake up and you get the sense, and you might be able to relate to this a little bit, but you get the sense that you are in a controversy and that you should do some sort of form of reputation management, but there's no manual on what you should do. And in this case, in the sports world, I turn on the TV and it was such a viral moment that it was the lead story everywhere. And I'm literally watching people on television argue with each other about whether or not I'm good at my job. I'm just watching this take place. And uh, it's very Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, you've got I will be your champion. You've got the guy, you know, fighting for fighting for your fate and the guy fighting against it. And you're just watching it. You're just watching it take place. And you, you have no you have no purchase on the situation. And you can't really even dissociate from the conversation. The conversation will find you because I might have wanted to sign off, but then I'm getting text messages from friends. I'm getting text messages from people I haven't talked to in years, and they're feeling this need to keep me updated on, on it all. So, I, I mean, I tell the story of somebody says, hey, uh, Dan Patrick on his radio show, he was saying good things about you. And I go, oh, yeah, 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 Dan Patrick. Like, Here's the clip. And I start watching, and Dan Patrick saying good things about me, and that feels good to the ego. You know, that soothes me. I go, yeah, Dan Patrick. Yeah, 1990 Sports Center was fucking great. I love you, Dan Patrick. <laughs> Wonderful. And somebody goes, uh, you know, former NBA star Tracy McGrady. He was talking shit about you, dude. <laughs> he was saying some bad things about you. So then, then, then I watch that clip, and I'm just like, and I feel a little like a, a feeling of something sour in my gut. I was like, ah, fuck you, Tracy McGrady. He never got out of the first round. Ah, <laughs> fucking overrated. Ah, boo. You know, I'm, I'm cycling through these emotions, and then somebody says, you know, Stephen A. He said one good thing about you, but then he didn't like how you handled it. And then I'm, and I, at this point, I'm just going, wait a second. This is, this is, this is madness. This is absolute madness. This is not healthy. I think our happiness is inversely correlated to the time we spend thinking about how other people think about us. I think that is one of the many benefits of having a child is that you just start thinking about somebody else. Uh, it's not a healthy space to be in. And having gotten thrown into it, I felt a lot of sympathy for Durant in the way that this impacts him and the way that he appears to be addicted to it. Because for those who don't know, he's very online. He's been caught arguing his reputation from burner accounts. And I thought, if you've got this tendency, um, then this has to be a kind of hell. Because I did not enjoy that day. For the most part, I did not enjoy the following week, even if it probably got my name out there and even if it probably helped me sell this book. Yeah, I think it's very weird to go from um, <clears throat> to go from having nobody in the wider world know who you are to having like a little bit of name recognition or to have your name start to get sort of thrown around like that. It's just like you have to I don't know what happens with me is I'll have like I have these wonderful followers on Twitter who I really like, but they'll sometimes DM me. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, this person over here, you will not believe what they said about you. And I'm like, yeah. I don't. I don't it doesn't need... help me. That doesn't no. help me psychologically. <laughs> no, Twitter, Twitter followers, if you're listening to this, you do not need to tell me whenever someone at like the nation is mad at me. It's just, huh. I think, I mean, what you're saying is true. As humans, we only have 
so much capacity to really deal with any of this rationally. And and that thing you said happened where you hear someone who they said something mean about you and your brain immediately tries to rearrange itself to make them the bad guy, whatever the circumstance. Yeah. It's just like very um well, very we remember it better too. I, I I hear my colleagues who talk about all the crazy people on Twitter and how mean the fans are, and then I'll look at their mentions and maybe it's one out of ten. Yeah. But that one, it activates the fight or flight. It gets the adrenaline up when you feel attacked. Those compliments, they just roll right off your back. It's the insults that stick. It's the insults that you remember. And so that ultimately taints your experience of, of what you're doing talking in public. So I think, um, I mean, one of the reasons I'm excited to read your book, and I, I do think, based on what you've told me about it, that it will uh, appeal to non-sports fans, is that whole sort of question of happiness. Because it sounds like one of the subplots, based on conversations we've had offline, is like, these guys were not only at the top of their game for now, they were arguably one of the best teams of all time. And it sounds like there wasn't necessarily a predictable relationship relationship between that and how happy and fulfilled they were, right? Yeah, winning is a lie, apparently. It's this carrot that we're reaching for, and once we get it, it tastes like a carrot. It's, 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 uh, it's <laughs> not as great or as fulfilling as uh, we build it up to be. And maybe that's true of this book for me. I have this fantasy that I'll I'll write this book and it will change my life. And hey, somehow I'm fine knowing that even if it does change my life, it won't change my life, if you know what I mean. I think somebody was telling me uh, who was involved in the championship that, you know, you win it and you've got this moment of euphoria, but then you're back on the plane. And somebody's yeah. complaining about how something got fucked up with the parade. And somebody else is complaining about how you've got draft workouts uh, a few days from then. And you're back on the grind. And it didn't just magically alter everything about your existence. And I think we can – anybody who's ever played a video game can relate to this. How does it feel when you beat the video game? You know, at the you know, first, you're, you're, you're happy you beat it. And then suddenly uh, – uh, this ennui sets in because you miss having the goal to chase. And we can all relate to that. We've all been through it. And this is just that on a, on a greater, on a greater level. And that's different because there are team dynamics and ultimately you need the fulfillment and the happiness to stick together. Um, you need that in order to keep it going. And it just becomes ever more of a challenge because look, the difference between no championships and one championship is huge, huge. But the difference between one and two, I mean, you know, maybe kind of big, but two and three, three and four, eventually the returns diminish. And then does it seem like such a great idea to work so hard uh, in pursuit of just a numerical difference? I don't know. As, as a Patriots fan, you have no idea how obnoxious I could be right now if I wanted to. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, that, yeah. that's the sixth Super Bowl. Just, <laughs> it just doesn't yeah, it doesn't have the same, but I think the Patriots are a bit of a different case because they've spread it out for so long, right? It's it's another thing in the NBA. I think that's ultimately what helped sustain the Spurs, uh, the the San Antonio Spurs run is they've never they never won a back to back championship, and I think that 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 helped it keep going for two decades. Versus if you've got success after success after success, it's a little bit tougher. Yeah, yeah, it's weird just because it. it... Football also just replenishes, right? It's not really the same crew of guys. It's Tom Brady, it's Bill Belichick, but the cast of characters just revolves and it uh, doesn't revolve. I mean, it's just the NFL, they say, stands for not for long. And the NBA, it's a little bit more of a sustained crew. 
so what do you what do you take from I mean you mentioned you're writing a book now it's like a big professional milestone we're uh we're about the same age uh, you're a, a fairly new father what do you all this stuff about sort of happiness and fulfillment and the relationship or lack thereof to professional success have you I don't know have you sort of extracted anything from all this how has it changed your thoughts on sort of the uh the good life for lack of a less cliched phrase yeah I, I... I, I think about that because we ultimately need our ambition. We ultimately need to believe this lie that this is going to make us happy in order to be happy. I need to be chasing something or I'm going to fall into to crapulence. Um, I guess I, I, I've sort of altered my perspective in thinking I need to do well at work for the sake of my family and our economic security. But I can never tell if it's really just about me and my own narcissism and now I'm putting this uh, I, I'm putting this new gloss on it to make it sound more uh, responsible uh, I don't know Jesse I, I don't know if I unlocked I, I unlocked the secret to uh, to happiness in writing this book I, I suppose I should tell people that I have but in the MBA I just haven't seen a lot of happiness I've seen a lot of the opposite I think uh, Paul Silas once said MBA ain't no bowl of roses um, but it's, it's in many ways, a dark world. It's a dark world in, in a way that I'm not sure fans necessarily grasp because it's sold to them as a fun world. It's fun. And these players, they're talking smack to each other on Instagram. You know, it's like, it's just this big expressive, um, party, but in reality on the ground level, it's a Darwinian hellscape. Right. It's the weak get eaten. You know, everybody out there, they're trying to kill you on the other side. I mean, metaphorically, but they're trying to expose and attack your weaknesses. And there are people on the bench who want to take your job and cannot wait for you to falter. And that's the environment that these players operate in. And then everybody else, that competitive nature of the sport uh, is felt broadly. Um, the uh, behind the scenes machinations are vicious, just completely vicious. And there's a lot of betrayal. And that's that's the world that these people operate in. It's not exactly a world that's conducive to happiness. All I would say is that if you want to be happy, maybe don't work in the NBA. Well, without uh, telling stories that would get you in trouble, what's the what kind of Machiavellian stuff do you think the casual fan doesn't know about? <clears throat> Um, what kind of Machiavellian stuff is the casual? Well, increasingly they do know about it. Increasingly they do see the moves, how they're happening and how coaches get fired and how GMs get fired. Um, you know, with the Warriors, uh, back in the day, I think the thing that, that leads to the most brutality behind the scenes is a power vacuum. Uh, because in the power vacuum, when the owner is a little bit out to lunch, uh, everybody's just grappling for power underneath that i think you saw that with the lakers where uh magic johnson versus rob palinka the current gm they they obviously were plotting against each other and after magic johnson quit he he went on first take and said <laughs> yeah. bluntly that rob palinka had betrayed him it was incredible and, yeah and then you've got you've got uh lebron as as part of that whole dynamic who's famously passive aggressive with coaches and tends to get coaches fired. And there's a certain amount of might makes right. You know, LeBron has won championships doing this, right? So can you really tell him this doesn't work? I mean, maybe it's a dickish thing to do, but it seems to work. And behind the scenes, just even on a lower level, I remember with the Warriors that they brought in a, a head trainer or director of sports performance, whatever the fuck you want to call it, and uh, brought him over from Australia. 
and he uh, came along with uh, a, a, another person from Australia, and the person under him uh, effectively allied with Andre Godala to get him the fuck out of there and to fire him. And then that person uh, was promoted. Now, everybody might have been right to get him out of there. I can't tell you for sure how good or bad he was at this um, vaguely defined job, right? But those are the sorts of things that happen. People are very status conscious, and um, there's just the, – the NBA scene – uh, I, I keep bringing up Game of Thrones and it's out of the zeitgeist, so maybe I should shift my analogies to something more contemporary like Barry. I don't know. But uh, it, it, every one of these arenas is like a little castle, and it has the feeling of a medieval castle, especially because many of the arenas uh, are run by ownership groups that are, are familial. That, that are just these billion-dollar mom-and-pop shops. That's what the Lakers were. The Lakers had this Game of Thrones scenario where the old patriarch died, and then there was just this vicious fight for who runs the Lakers between brother and sister. And ultimately, the sister, Jeannie Buss, won that power struggle and got to run the team. Um, but when you add that element of nepotism, um, you really get the sense that maybe this isn't such a meritocratic world uh, and it's not exactly what you know. It's something else. And I think that informs a lot of the uh, the viciousness behind the scenes. Wow. I have an idea for a blurb for your book. This could go on the cover. It could be, mm. this book taught me that true sustaining happiness is an impossible lie. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> sell some copies. There you It'll go. Fly off put, the shelves. Put, put that in the not self-help section. Yeah, exactly. Self-harm. Yeah, self-harm. Um. In a minute, let's take a quick break because I want to talk to you about some uh, slightly more political-related stuff. Though we'll, we'll keep it in the in the NBA universe. But was there anything else you wanted to say about your book or about the stuff you've seen covering this very uh, very interesting team? Just read it, everybody. Just read it. I think it's going to be good. I, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm interested in it. And if I'm interested in it, there's a good chance that you'll be interested in it. So please read it so I can finally reach that everlasting state of happiness <laughs> yeah. just eluded me. It's eluded me mysteriously. But I think this time it's different. This time, if you buy my book, I will reach enlightenment. If, if I'm hearing you correctly about what you learned from, from the Warriors, there's a certain number of books where if you reach that level, you'll, <laughs> yeah. never, you'll never be unhappy again. That'll be it. Yeah, yeah. That's what I learned from reading Catch-22. There's, there's <laughs> obviously a proper amount of missions at which point uh, you'll be fine. That's what I learned. Yes. As we know, Catch-22 refers to a situation where everything works out no matter yes. what. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll uh, come back with more in a sec. Hello? I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. I wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat and a six form part. I wish I was like six foot nine so I can get with Leoshi because she don't know me, but yo, she's really fine. You know, I see her all the time everywhere I go and even in my dreams. I can scheme a ways to make her mine because I know she's living fat. Her boyfriend's tall and he plays ball, so how am I going to compete with that? Because when it comes to playing basketball, I'm always last to be picked and in some cases never picked at all. So I just lean up on the wall or sit up in the bleachers. Okay, so we're back with Ethan Strauss. Ethan, we, uh, you and I got lunch. God, like what, a year and a half ago or so now. And wow. It's crazy. 
Feels like, it feels like yesterday. It was a very formative moment for me. Shout out Grand Lake Kitchen in Oakland. Lovely yes, establishment. It was it was really, really good. It seemed like the hip place to go, which I appreciated. Because I would not have gone there if it wasn't hip. Um, <laughs> so but you told me a story about uh, the NBA center Andrew Bogut and Jordan Peterson, which I think you also told on your podcast. But yeah, love to run that back if you don't mind uh, telling us Sure, yeah. sure. So it started out as a bit of a dare. Kind of like I said before where – one of the reasons why I wanted to come on the podcast is you told me it might be bad for my career. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a similar, almost it was a dare from Bogut, who had a, I'd come to know from his time with the Warriors. Um, he was really into Jordan Peterson, and he was in L.A. at the time playing for the Lakers, and he wanted to see Jordan Peterson do an event there while he was on his Jordan Peterson tour. And he said, yeah, you, you should do this. You're going to lose all your media friends he's big on you know the the media fucking media um and how i I would be shunned by my colleagues and and everyone else and i kind of thought i'm not going to be shunned i mean maybe some people would would take issue with it i suppose but it's just it's interesting I'm, i'm i'm a curious person right it's the same thing that makes me interested in the subcultures whether it's the soccer hooligans whether it's the chefs somebody tells me you get to see these people who show up to the Jordan Peterson event. And I'm not a Jordan Peterson fan. I I don't really believe that Christianity is the skeleton key for understanding all of existence in the way that Peterson seems to. Um, But I want to see what this phenomenon is. And frankly, it was fascinating. I mean, less so the parts of Peterson actually talking, but it was just going there with Bogut, seeing Peterson, I think just by happenstance an hour before the show, walking the streets of downtown LA and almost just being greeted like a liberator. You know, people were running out of coffee shops to shake his hand and thank him profusely. And it was just so incongruous with the um, media portrayal of him, the kind of blue statey media portrayal that this is uh, a pariah figure. And yet walking in downtown LA, the, the, the blue stadiest, the blue state places, he, if anything, was embraced. And the people who went to the event, uh, they did not, they, they were not proud boys or whatever I want to characterize it as. You know, these were mostly hipsters and uh, and young professionals. And I, I'm not even sure if they were really political people. I, you know, the opener for, for Peterson was uh, was Dave Rubin, who I think badly misjudged the room because I think he thought that these people were obsessed with all the shit that he's obsessed with. And he made some green frogs joke or, or, or whatnot. I think he asked the audience something like who here is a green frog online. And the, the crowd just blinked and just stared at him dumbfounded, not knowing what the hell he was talking about. Because, you know, I think we, we sometimes, because if you're in media and it's very political, you think that's what everybody's obsessed with. But Jordan Peterson, even if he's a political controversial figure and a man of the right wrote in effect a self-help book and people are into self-help books and i think that was the other takeaway i had from the event was that this is a an entry point for the right especially into getting young people because people really like self-help and self-help isn't as common it's not as commonly espoused on the left probably because on the left environmental uh, reasons are, are are more discussed of of why people are in circumstances they're in. I mean, obviously, people are in circumstances they're in for a combination of both, you know, personal choices and and environmental reasons. But you know, on the left, it's more the circumstance. So 
since there's such a hunger out there for um for some sort of guidance in life and especially a lot of young men i think today are listless and wayward um and don't know what to do uh i think that there's a lot of resonance to that particular message and you can just see that on the ground level and i just found it i just found it interesting and yeah i got some shit for it and yeah some people didn't like that i did it but i'd rather show up and see it uh than just imagine it and straw man it yeah, I love that moment with with Dave Rubin sort of making jokes about about Pepe, who's sort of a you know controversial alt right figure symbol they co opted, and I do think people like you're saying are are missing the fact that clearly Peterson is providing people with something they want, and even if you disagree with him politically, which I do, you can't just sort of write that off as like everyone who's into Peterson is going to be joining the alt-right tomorrow. It's like there's something more complicated than that going on. I think you're right that like I don't I don't see what progressives or the left is arguing offering in that sort of health self-help space that could compete with that. And I, well, I guess that should worry me a little bit if it is an entry, at least in conservative it, politics. Isn't the Chapo book something like how to be like one of us? Isn't there something to that? I, I haven't read it, so I don't know, but there, I guess there's something there, but it's not quite self-help. I, I don't even know how the left would break into the self-help business. I just know that for a lot of people, there is a void and Jordan Peterson is waltzing into that void, this massive void. And yeah. I, it's hard. It's just like herding cats on the left. I, I don't really know of anybody. There's no mission control, right? There's nobody who just says, this is what we should all be doing. You know, if anything, it seems to be a competition for status within where people care more about their own individual reputations and how the thing does as a whole. So I don't know how that void might ever be filled on the left. I just notice it as one particular advantage on the right that can really speak to people. And it seems like it can especially speak to young men at this moment. Did you talk to a number of the people who who showed up for this event in person? Yeah, I talked to a few of them. I mean, I didn't I didn't interview them extensively, and perhaps I should have. There's a very long line um, of of people uh, trying to seek autographs, but th th there was a lot of the same messaging of this isn't political for me. You know, this isn't. Like I've heard about some of the politics stuff, but I just like I just like the rules. I just like the ideas of it all, and that is what. It is completely possible. I know it's hard to imagine from people who are deep in the media weeds. It's quite possible that there are these people who exist and their friend says, hey, this guy, I wrote a book. And it's about getting your life together and cleaning your room or whatever the fuck. And they go and they get the book and they read it and they like it. And they literally have no idea that this guy is even controversial. Those people exist. And if the sales numbers are at all illustrative um, or telling, uh, they might exist in the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. I think those people are the majority. I mean, I really do. There, there's a lot of reason to think that exactly as you're saying, this is, this is a problem political journalists have a lot, where they'll, they'll write about sort of the everyday voter, but have no idea that the everyday voter approaches politics from a completely different angle. I mean, um, yeah. I was out with someone last night who said that her, her, her dad... I'm not revealing. I'm not revealing anyone's name. It's fine. This person's dad switched from Bernie to Donald Trump. Yeah, Ide ideologically that makes no sense. But the average voter is not thinking stuff through it in a, you know, ideologically 
sophisticated way, not to sound like an elitist. They're just, they're drawn to people who they think want to help them. And I think that's part of what's going on with Peterson, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those people exist. They might even exist in excess of a million people. Um, you know, you've got what, however many million, I mean, I've heard some reports of seven, eight million people who voted for Obama, who then voted for Trump. So those people certainly exist. And I think we lose track of what motivates those people. And it's such a cliche to say that we live in a bubble, but we do. And I'll tell you what's interesting. Um, okay. So this is, this is what's interesting to me. And I hope it's not too much of a digression. Uh, Sometimes uh, we have a Discord uh, chat for the series of podcasts I'm on, and listeners of the podcast will, you know, on occasion wonder what I am. And and I, I, there was once they were debating what my politics are, and I think I shared, you know, you know that hidden tribe survey. Have you taken that survey? You know what I'm talking about? No, I've read about that. I'm writing about uh, their newest research. It's really interesting. But just give people the the quick rundown. Yeah, it's it's a survey that tells you effectively what political tribe you are in. And what what gets interesting about it? Okay, so I took it, and my survey result was a traditional liberal. I, apparently, I'm effectively I'm just like a, a, a senior citizen liberal. I'm you know I'm 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 Aaron Sorkin, I guess. Uh, well, but it, but, it, but in media speak, that means you're far right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm Aaron Sorkin with my magic mushrooms and my problems <laughs> with women and 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 whatever else. I mean, that's 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 what it says. I, I don't know how accurate it is. Uh, who knows? Um, but that's what it says about me. Pretty much uh, all of my friends in media, if not all my friends, get back the same result, which is progressive activist. Um, maybe that's not totally fascinating. What's more interesting is that according to Hidden Tribes, that's an 8% of the electorate constituency. Right. It's eight. It's 8%. It feels much bigger. And what's interesting to me about it, whenever I have shared the survey and this result happens, I, you get the same response, which is not, oh, my God, how cool. I'm on the vanguard. You know, hell, yeah, I'm a progressive activist. Yeah, this is awesome. That's not the response. The response is to immediately start arguing with the survey result. You know, I, I got traditional liberal. It's a very unfashionable, very uncool category, right? I'm an old man. I'm a boomer liberal, according to this the survey. But I shrug and I go, yeah, okay, you know. But my friends, there's something in them for whatever reason, even if they are on Twitter trying to be on the forefront of something, uh, trying to outdo their friends in fashionability, this survey result, it's almost like when you're paddling around out in the ocean and then you look back at the beach and you go, holy shit, that's way too far away. I didn't know I was here. There, there, there's this thing where people don't want to be on the fringe, that part of them deeply, for at least most people, wants to be in, in the mainstream. And they are shocked and a little bit destabilized when they learn that they are not in the mainstream and they're somewhere else. I've just it's it's funny to see it happen again and again. I mean, I guess if you're if you're in a professional ecosystem like ours, it's probably easy to lose sight of the fact that you're not in the mainstream, right? Yeah, it's easy. I mean, what's funny, though, is we know it intellectually. It's become a, a kind of cultural trope that we are not in the mainstream. I So I don't know why it comes as such a shock to have it quantified in that way. But it appears to come as a shock to people that, you know, that they, they, they want to be they, they want to be something else. I, I wonder if the wish is that. 
I want to be on the vanguard that creates the mainstream. Maybe that's the wish. Maybe that's what they want. But it seems like there's an incongruity there, if not a dissonance. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to bounce about too much, Jesse. But I, I think I saw that with um, with with Kaepernick. You know, the Kaepernick uh, seeing that go down. I know you wanted to ask me. Well, okay, so you know, I'm doing this poorly. I'm hijacking your podcast. Do you want to get into the politics of media people, sports media people versus the fans, or do you, do you have any more questions about uh, about about the previous topic? No, I mean, I was I was going to ask you how this stuff manifests because the NBA is obviously a very um a very progressive and very political yes. league, and so I'm curious how this manifests there. Yeah, media people and the fans are more in alignment with the NBA. Um, because the average NBA fan is a voter for the Democratic Party. Now, in the other sports, uh, if you look at the survey data, and when I was at ESPN, I, I did because they would do market research, and you could just see it if you wanted to. Um, they might even trend right, if not center right, for the sports fan in general. I mean, it skews male. Uh, they're interested in a highly masculine enterprise. It shouldn't be surprising, but you saw this. At the time of what is now being called by some the, the Great Awakening, where social media kind of informed these or, or created these rapidly, uh, just rapidly formed consensus on, on issues that were maybe at a step with the mainstream and media, that around this time was happening, you had sports pundits and sports writers who were just so, so different in what they regarded as normal uh, than a lot of the fans. And that's not to say one side was right and one side was wrong, but it just clearly was uh, was just a, a cleave point that it opened up. And you definitely saw it with Colin Kaepernick. I mean, that was just the cross streams of everything. And it was fascinating to watch on the sidelines because I wasn't, I wasn't in NFL media. It wasn't really my thing, but I was just watching it all unfold. And it, it, it was it was interesting because I would read survey data on the vast majority of at the time and maybe it's changed, but the majority of football fans hating Kaepernick and Kaepernick not being very popular among the American people, but also recognizing that if you're a media member and you were to start in vain against Colin Kaepernick, there would be social consequences if not career consequences, depending on where you were. And watching that all unfold and watching that tension was uh, it was surreal, really. It was surreal. You, you would think that there would have been more media members who would just take that found money of, uh, of talking to. And I think that's probably where Clay Travis has stepped into that particular, uh, that particular market inefficiency, if you want to regard it cynically, of speaking to those sports fans. Um, but... It was crazy. And what was also crazy to relate it back to the hidden tribes and people not being so comfortable with the result that they get is there was this big conversation about TV ratings because the NFL ratings were dropping at around the time of the Kaepernick affair. And a lot of media people who were pro Kaepernick were arguing against this being a real phenomenon. They were arguing that the ratings drop had nothing to do with Colin Kaepernick. And I thought it was so bizarre because if you were accepting the premise that Kaepernick is a secular hero, that he's speaking to something real, that America is shot through with white supremacy, that it's just part of everything, everything about the country, then it would stand a reason that people would turn off the TV because they were offended by Colin Kaepernick. I, I, I looked at it as take yes for an answer. And right. yet, and yet there's this aspect that you see with the Hidden Tribe survey where they wanted – 
their take on things to be the mainstream. And I found that to be, uh, on some level, just amusing. There's an interesting parallel here to a lot of progressive journalism because I've noticed, like, there's a style of writing that very much seems geared at the, what I call, like, the wokest 15%. So you, you cover some hot-button controversy, but in a way where you're you're writing for the wokest people, for, like, the, the core readership of a you know, whatever, Jezebel or BuzzFeed, both of which are publications that, that have done great journalism and have good writers, but they have a very lefty fan base. But I guess I don't, to me, it's hard for me to even think of an answer of like, if you're a progressive minded NFL analyst or journalist, and you feel a certain way about Kaepernick, but the way you feel is out of step with most of the country, what what's the right approach there? Because you don't want to say like, yeah, I genuinely don't have an answer to that, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. I was just chuckling at the whole venture. I was chuckling at the whole thing. I wondered if what they were reckoning with was the lot in life they'd chose, they'd <laughs> chosen, and how uh, it was completely out of step with their morals. You know, you know. Look, nobody should lose their job for espousing their political opinions in the way that Kaepernick was. But it was funny to me to see the journalists surrounding this so scandalized that the NFL owners were who they were. I mean, what did you think you guys were covering? What did you think this was? This is a fucking meat market. This is a meat grinder on top of that. This is a a sport that delivers brain damage quite reliably to the median player who plays it. And the people who preside on it or or preside over it are mostly dyed in the wool Republicans. How did you think this was going down? What did you think you were involved in? Did you think that you joined Greenpeace? What (laughs) did you think this was? I I was so uh, just I was I was chuckling from afar just at that aspect of uh, I, I, I wondered if they were if they were struggling with seeing what they were a part of and what they'd been a part of the whole time. Um, and I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer to the question that you're asking, but it's just a side observation that I had. It reminds me a little bit of like a bunch of Google employees petitioned San Francisco's pride parade to exclude their own company from the proceedings. It's just this thing of like, you're sort of within an organization and you rely upon it, but you're also sort of, convinced of its fundamental bankruptcy it's just a a weird position to be in yeah i'm reminded of i mean speaking of jordan peterson uh coach of the seahawks pete carroll had him show up to speak to the team was taking pictures of him and i saw various nfl journalists just scandalized and angered by this and i was thinking god who like what do you what do you what do you think nfl coaches are who do you think they're going to relate to more than mr Improve these young men, clean your room, Jordan Peterson. This guy speaks their language. This is obvious. How could you be offended by this? How is it even possible? To be offended by it is to not even know what you're engaging with. I think there's a certain level of, um, I don't know. If you're If you're a successful media person, you hang out with other successful media people, there's a level of almost... What is it? Is it condescension? Is it contempt? Because it's like we're in a really big country and most people don't share your I, politics. Most I people think, are. And, yeah. and think, by the way, I think the contempt, just bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, happens in part because of the responses you get on social media that make you feel bad. But I'm sorry I interrupted. You were saying. No, I mean, that was it. It's just I, I, I've been as someone who's pretty far to the left myself in a lot of ways, by a lot of standards, I've. I sort of realized you need to find a way to understand and write about the world in which you're not just writing off a huge chunk of the country or the world as, as irredeemable assholes with horribly reactionary politics. Even when, even when they have politics, you 
are repelled by. It's like at a certain point, it should be your job to explain or to understand, not just to relentlessly moralize. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. And uh, what spoke to me recently, and it's, God, we are losing our sense of this, was uh, Congressman John Lewis. And I don't want to litigate or even figure out what the hell Biden was talking about with the uh, segregationist Senator uh, Imbroglio. Um, I really didn't follow it that closely, but I liked what John Lewis was saying when he was defending Biden and talking about uh, speaking with and being in conversation with people who had repellent views. And he said something to the effect of, we, we never gave up on our fellow human being. And I thought to myself, man, I don't hear anybody say that anymore. You know, that is a quaint concept from the past. It really shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be this idea that the people, the populations that that you might not be a part of are indeed human beings. I mean, it's 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 rather obvious, but it just seems to be uh, in the social media era, not something that we are to believe in. And it seems like you get ostracized when you try to increase that understanding and speak to that. And I, I think part of it is is related to how the game works on social media, uh, when you're in media, especially, I, I remember I once, I once had a tweet that did pretty well. Um, I'm trying to even remember what it was. It had to do with the NFL. I think it had to do with the NFL, uh, and people being suspicious of them making it okay for players to smoke weed. And I think I said something to the effect of, um, you know, I don't want my players smoking weed. You know, I want, I, 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 I like, good old fashioned them getting shot up with pharmaceutical heroin on Sundays or <laughs> right. something, something to that effect. Right. And it did pretty well. And it did pretty well because I think that's a lot of what the game is. It's mocking the hypocrisy of the out group for your in group. That's what tends to connect, right? I'm mocking that these old fogies are suspicious of weed for my in group of, you know, millennial and journalistic people who are more chill about weed. And I'm mocking that they're hypocritical because this population uh, of stodgy types sees no issue with uh, shooting the players full of opiates, which is a fair point. But I, I thought to myself, oh, okay, that's how this game is played. If I wanted to accrue more status, I would work really hard on doing that, on on just framing that hypocrisy of the out group to my in group. Now, I'm not saying that I would do it so well. I've seen people who are more clever than I am who who do it really well. But it is the path to a lot of status and success within that milieu, that's for sure. And the path to status and success is not let's understand these people or let's see what their perspective is or let's see how they arrived at the conclusion that they arrived at. That is highly taboo. That will get you uh that, that that will get people throwing the rock at your head like piggy and lord of the flies right and well and let's let's extend the weed analogy because why not but it, you sort of because i've been in those spaces and you sort of you imagine journalists signing on to twitter every day because journalists spend 10 hours a day on twitter and just getting higher and higher off your own supply you get such a warm glow from that kind of tweet and yeah again the example you gave was perfectly valid because i you know the weed stuff's ridiculous but if if you spend all day hanging out with people and all they do is point at, you know, those idiots over there and laugh and you end endlessly get rewarded for it, even if it's this sort of, um, you know, a superficial currency of social media engagement. I, I can tell you from experience that absolutely affects the kinds of stories you write, the way you think about complicated issues. I just think it um, it feels good, but it has a, a corrosive well, effect in the long and, run. 
and in the end, I mean, it's a it's an educated population that's profoundly ignorant yeah. on some of the biggest news stories that shaped what happened in the country and are ignorant to what some of the phenomena were that got Donald Trump elected. Obviously, there were a lot of them, but I don't see them grappling with some of the most significant ones. And I think it's because they don't know. And I think it's because they don't know. They, they don't know because it would be taboo to even even share it. I mean, you look at the way they react. They react whenever the New York Times does a dispatch from Trump country. Um, there is sneering. There is this effort to make sure they never do it again, which I find bizarre because in theory you would want to know why people voted for Donald Trump if you wanted Donald Trump not to get elected. But, I mean, for one example, uh, throwing it out there, um, and, hey, the people listening, you can say I'm making a good point or you can say this is just some asshole sports writer. Why do I care what he has to say? And I'm, I'm fine with that. But, you know, I read Sam Quinona's uh, book Dreamland about the opiate crisis and it's such a huge crisis that there are multiple factors that caused it to be but one of the factors one of the factors is you had a lot of people coming over you had these mini cartels i mean it's a fascinating business story among other things uh the jalisco boys was the term for one of them and it was um, fairly impoverished kids from a fairly rural area coming up, and there was a business plan to go into the Midwest and into the South and to, and to push heroin. And the book is not in vain against these kids. In fact, it's quite sympathetic to them. You get the sense that if we grew up the way they grew up and you could make $50,000 in cash um, and bring it back to the rancho and be a big shot, I mean, we would all do it if that was our circumstance. It's not it's not portraying them as evil. It's just what happened. But this is also how a lot of these towns in Ohio and the Midwest, the areas that Trump overperformed in, this is how they've interfaced with uh, undocumented people. This is this is their experience. And if you look at all the maps and all the research, the surge in opiate deaths correlates so much to the surge in voting for Trump. I mean, it is it is clearly a correlation. And the response to all of this is not to understand why some of these populations might resonate and thrill to a build the wall chant. It's just to decry them as just racists that are irredeemable and are flawed and aren't even human beings. It's not to even go, well, I can understand that this, despite all of our lectures about how all of this is great and how all of the um, unvetted immigration across the border is fantastic and make their lives wonderful, um, I can see why these people in these towns uh, saw the towns get ravaged by heroin and have a whole other thing and certainly resonate to somebody who actually might be speaking to that. We don't even want to talk about that. And frankly, when I bring it up, even though it's been well documented in a best-selling book, my friends and media don't even fucking know this happened. They have no clue. Yeah, I I think um, it's hard, and and I think there's sort of there's also a class problem where there's been like some pretty misleading stats that you know you would think like the average Trump voter is is super wealthy or something because there's these zoomed out statistics where I think you know the average Republican is is richer than the average Democrat, but there's a lot of genuine. It's like a, a, a punchline at this point, but frankly, economic uncertainty in the U.S. And a mm. lot of that has hit like 
uh, happy, you know, pe- happy people don't vote for Donald Trump generally. I think. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, he's not exactly a figure uh, oh. who's who's proselytizing about uh, how things are great and I'm going to make them better. That's not that's not what he's tapping into. So yeah, it's but there there seems to be a willingness to um, and and you know I also get that too, right? I understand that part. I understand why a lot of my friends. You know, I've I've got a friend. Um, I've got a friend, uh, Amin Al Hassan, uh, ESPN. Uh, technically, Amin's from Sudan, even though he grew up in New York, and that's one of the countries that was put on the ban list. And if Amin says uh, Trump voters are bad people, and uh, that that's just how it is because of the choice they made, um, I don't agree with him. But I can certainly understand why he feels the way he feels, and I'm not going to lecture him on why he's wrong. I wouldn't. Um, and I also get how Trump was so beyond the pale that I think a lot of people just gave up on vast swaths of the country. Yeah, you know, in our part of the country, and they 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 said, well, if these people are going to vote for that guy, then there's nothing redeemable about them. They are fucking idiots. Um, and I'm just bailing out of this whole thing. I'm not buying into the idea that we need some reconciliation. I'm not buying into the idea of civility. I mean, look how uncivil Donald Trump was and he won. Why should I be civil? So I think there's that dynamic as well that's helped us uh, to get to this uh, hell world that we now live in. I think there's um, – I think people should take the idea of empathy really seriously. And that that yeah. that means taking seriously – why someone would make what is, to my mind, the terrible decision of voting for Donald Trump and why someone like your friend would would write that person off. How could you know, like if um, I was at JFK when the travel ban came down and, and the sort of horror and harm caused by that policy and the sheer thoughtlessness of it and the obvious connection to his insane ban all Muslims from entering the country. Like, I think the issue, it it's not, you know. It's not that I don't understand why people want to write off people who voted for them. It's just I think in the long run, it's it's not productive because we have a big, messy country. And I think there's a chance that the next Trumpish figure who comes along could be even worse and, and more competent. I mean, we've been saved from a lot yeah. of stuff by the fact that Trump has no actually has no idea what he's doing, except in this very lizard brain riling up a crowd way. That's sort of his only talent. He's completely incompetent. Otherwise, can you imagine if we had someone with the savvy of like, um, you know, a an Salvini? Obama- yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's not hard to imagine. And really, I think that we've seen something similar play out in the history of politics where, look, Nixon was competent. But the story of Nixon, if you read uh, Rick Perlstein's uh, histories on, on the conservative movement, if you subscribe to some of what he was saying about it is, you know, Nixon rises, he taps into that silent majority. He goes down in flames with Watergate, maybe in the way that Trump might go down in flames, but he's unlocked something that savvier conservative politicians make use of for a generation of dominance in American politics. I could easily see something like that uh, coming about, that Trump eventually self-immolates just because it's it's the nature of, of Trump and that some smarter people, some savvier people understand the things he did. It got him to where he was um, and use it more effectively. They can see it happening. 
Yeah, well, and you combine that with the fact that like Republicans do have a lot of structural advantages between the Electoral College and gerrymandering. You could see like really depressing futures for our country where, you know, 40 to 45 percent of people just run everything and they're incredibly resentful, incredibly angry. And I think we should do what we can to uh, to prevent that, even when it requires swallowing our pride a little bit. And, and well, I, I think but, but I think here's here's the problem that you're up against right now. Um, it's that arguments of practicality don't compel people that there are a lot of people in media making these arguments and saying, hey, lefties, don't do this. You're going to lose the election if you do this. Hey, don't do that. Oh, you can't run that person. That person's going to freak out middle America. Don't do that. And those arguments, I think a lot of the times are true, but they don't compel people because people don't think like PR people. They don't think of themselves as of this team and we all need to be on the same page. By and large, by and large, they don't. They think of, I want to vote for the person who is morally right. That's what I want to do. That's what I care about as an individual. And that that also might speak to why some of the rhetoric that we hear is so overwrought and has such emotionality to it because that seems to move people. The argument of practicality just doesn't just doesn't move people. It doesn't. Maybe it should, but it does not. Yeah, it's uh, well, on that on that depressing note. Well, let's just sum up where we're at. Uh, this is going to be a rough summary. Uh, generally accurate. You're a uh, you're a alt right Jordan, <laughs> Jordan Peterson fan. You hate Colin Kaepernick. Uh, you want to ban NFL players from smoking weed, right? I, think I want Colin Kaepernick to clean his room. I think it's the <laughs> upshot of it all. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and stop watching porn or whatever else Peterson's telling people. I don't know. I'm I'm actually I'm halfway through his book because I'm writing about him for my own book. So it's been uh, <laughs> it's been an experience. There's a lot of um. I do I do need to clean my apartment, so that is true. <laughs> Yes, I, I think that would get, that would be good. That would be good for all. Uh, Jesse, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Uh, do you think I've destroyed my career? I mean, what do you think? Do you think I'm oh, okay? I, I should say this both to you and to potential future guests. I, I think you'll be okay. Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> I don't think um, no one who has been on this podcast so far has had their career destroyed, but you could be the first. We'll find Z out. Zero days since an accident. That's good. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a lot of fun. I'd love to come on in the future. And uh, good luck to you and everything you're doing. I can't help but take the reins of the podcast. I'm just used to hosting a podcast. I'm sorry. This is your job. I'm sorry, Jesse. <laughs> no, I've just been uh, sitting here listening to your wonderful words. It's been great. No, it's been really good chat. I appreciate uh, you coming on. And when the book comes out, you should come back. I, I will come back. Thanks, people.